0: Welcome to the host, Eucharistic and Hipster Talk, with your hosts, Maverick and Caleb. In this show, we come to discuss various issues as it relates to Orthodox Christianity, Hipster Talk, and pretty much everything in between. I hope you enjoy this episode with us.
1: Hello, Maverick. Okay, so I, I actually have a new...
0: Um, microphone, so I'm just testing it out.
1: Wow, your Can sound you? just got amazingly better in just a second, right after you said that. So, ready? Okay, cool. Yeah, you're much more louder. So, because in the past you've kind of been like lower key. So, this is actually really good. So,
0: okay, I mean that's a good start to our podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. So, how so, you been,
0: Maverick? Oh, uh, I mean, you, you know. When when you're busy studying and working, I guess it kind of, you know, yeah, it does wear you out. So, I mean, that's pretty much what I've been doing lately, working, study, studying, working, studying, you know.
1: Combinations oh. of the two, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, How you. about you? Oh, man. uh. With this uh I mean I'm still kind of recovering from the uh from the awfulness that was twenty twenty. Like I can't believe it's twenty twenty two right now. But um mm-hmm. other than that, I mean this year's kind of started off interesting. I mean, uh, you know, family and I are at a new, you know, new church we've been going to since about I think it was August. And yeah you, know, you know, but also a new job for me. Um, so you know, lots of new beginnings and me and the wife are likely going to buy our first home this year. So yeah, so many new beginnings for us all. So kind of busy with three different things in my life. And I'm sort of accepted that role as head of the household that I'm always I'm not busy. So <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. Very cool. Cool. <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah. Uh I I've been um attending a new church too, so uh I, I'm attending a church that's uh kind of far from me. It's like two hours between one and two hours from home, but I'm able to to go to church enough times uh to kind of recover from all of the loneliness that I endured during uh covid-19 uh i mean i i i feel like the covid-19 kind of phase is starting to normalize mm-hmm. uh, at least yeah i mean we, we we're getting used to a new normal um and i think we yeah. didn't know that i i i think we didn't know that about a year ago but i think we know now i mean 2022 is here and we're still dealing with covid-19
1: you know yeah exactly well, maybe on that note, since we're new lives and churches and all that, maybe we should inter- introduce ourselves uh, to our listeners who may be turning tuning in for the first time. As this is the first episode of our little podcast together, so Maverick, why don't you go first, and then I'll give my little introduction to myself.
0: Yeah. Well, so the the host Eucharistic and Hipster Talk started with me, just you know unlearning and uh, talking about the things that I'm unlearning um, when I started uh, coming to terms with the fact that Protestantism was not going to be the spiritual home for me and when I finally decided to do this um, I was so non-Western in my theological way of thinking that eventually um, you know I saw myself becoming uh, a Christian in the Eastern tradition, specifically the Russian Orthodox tradition right now. But um, I was raised as a Pentecostal fundamentalist, uh, you know, uh, think independent fundamentalist Baptist, except we believe in the charismatic stuff, uh, the charismatic Mm -hmm. gifts like speaking in tongues and stuff. And that was probably um the way i viewed myself uh you know as as a christian as a pentecostal but i think you know i i i studied a lot i started asking questions and i f- started accepting things like calvinism and that was before orthodoxy of course um calvinism and then i realized you know um in my undergraduate degree um I, I realized probably in, in my first year already that I don't know how long I'm gonna stay in this world because there was a burden of trying to reconcile things together that I think no one can really reconcile. And so I couldn't really be a Christian in the Protestant world and you know I'm I'm busy with my postgraduate studies and I think I know now you know i know now more than ever that i couldn't go ahead with that western protestant way of relating to god and so now i you know i i will be received into this new eastern perspective of christian living and faith and i i'm 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 really i'm really glad that i that i that i found this you know amen to that or, or rather
1: or rather that it found me um <laughs> right. i've come home there you go. Very good. Amen. Well, so I guess that leaves me. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name's Caleb. I am Maverick's partner in crime. Have been for quite a while. I mean, just looking back, I can't even mm-hmm. remember, but we've been doing stuff together for a long time. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, I can remember
0: a, a time when uh, we were Calvinists. and um, Yeah, that was yeah. Like
1: 2016, 17, not too long ago. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a couple yeah. of years back, and look at us. Exactly, and and like Maverick, you know, I so I had a rather strange background that is not where I am now. The imagination, and if you remember, you know, every year they're doing it on Facebook, it's like post yourself ten years ago and post yourself now. You know those pictures. Um, there was a meme floating around that said it said myself ten years ago, and it was a picture of Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill Church, and it said picture yourself now and it was a picture of an icon of Christ and the Theotokos and I was like that is exactly me um so yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah 100% and I mean I, I grew up Southern Baptist just uh I wouldn't say Arminian but definitely not Calvinist but just sort of your run-of-the-mill average Southern Baptist and uh grateful for the upbringing I had great for grateful for the very good, I would say mostly positive experiences I had in my Baptist church growing up. Um, But around the, around college I began to, uh, I began to be exposed to a lot of different types of religions and beliefs and philosophy. I only really read about in books and never met people who identified with those things. I mean, we're talking Islam and Hinduism, atheism, those kind of things. Uh, In college, you know, this was when the uh, the new atheism was at its, at its peak. So, you know, the Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, uh, Christopher Hitchens types were sort of like the, if you were in the, in the end crowd with the intelligent people, that's who you were reading. And if you were a quote, new atheist, you were seen as, you know, enlightened and, you know, smart, and things like that. And of course, I never flirted with the idea of atheism and I wanted to learn how to defend my faith. So I began to delve into apologetics and, of course, it was standard stuff, you know, C.S. Lewis, William Lane Craig, you know, things like that. But but, you know, as, as I went further down that rabbit hole, um, probably around 2013 or so, um, I became involved with what's known as the Young Restless and Reformed Movement, which was sort of a revival of Calvinism that had kind of broke out amongst various evangelical communions and um, these were guys like, you know, Mark Driscoll, John Piper and Vody Bauckham and, you know, James White and the others, uh, Matt Chandler, you know, David Platt, all those kind of guys. And, you know, I really, I guess what drew me to Calvinism in that time period, which drew a lot of young people to Calvinism, which I think probably you would agree, Maverick, is um, Calvinism had a lot of explanatory power and seemed to be a, mm-hmm. one of those one of those ideologies that could really go toe-to-toe with atheism unapologetically. Um, you know, and, you know, but the problem with, with that sort of ideology is that it's, it, it kind of works like, but the, the problem, problem is, is once you have a new hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I stayed in that world for a long time, so it seemed to be an indefensible, or it seemed to be a, an invincible theology right that nothing could really contradict it or or prove it wrong um and that everybody who tried to prove it wrong was simply feelings right it wasn't anything logical or philosophically deep but anyway i ended up long story short i ended up diving into patristical studies because i was like well you know the reformation's only 500 years of church history you know between the reformation until now i'm like man what happened before you know, because I, I was never under the impression that the whole church was Roman Catholic and corrupt before then. And so um, I started del- delving into the early church, uh, delving into the church fathers. And that's when I kind of realized that I couldn't be uh, Protestant anymore. It's kind of like once it's something you've seen, you can't unsee. That once you realize what the early church believed um, and consistently believed for 1500 years, it's just impossible to... It demands you do something. It demands you respond to that in a certain way. And uh, I tried, and immediately I was seeing what I was seeing in the Church Fathers. I was like, man, the Orthodox had this down. They believe exactly what the early Church believed. But I, I was sort of afraid to admit that. And so what I ended up doing is I went to the Anglican Church for about three years, because I thought, you know, at least people won't think I'm, you know, when you leave. You know, I'll still be quote Protestant. People may think I'm weird. They're not. They won't think I'm damned, and my friends will still like me. You know, but I mean, then I really look in church. I like the BCP and and the liturgy and things like that. But it became very clear for you know after three years in there. But that was that Anglicanism was simply not the right path. Um, Anglicanism now, and that they don't teach the apostolic faith and. From that point onward, that's uh, in, in uh, 2020, I kind of got faced with Orthodoxy again. And I was like, ma'am, what is stopping me from being Orthodox? Um, and I honestly had to wrestle with that. And my answer was nothing. Um, and from that point onward, um, I, you know, after a long talk with my wife, long talk with my, uh, you know, family and friends, I was like, you know, I'm going to start taking my family to an Orthodox church. And we're going to get involved in catechism. And, uh, from that point onward, my family and I have been attending Saint Silvan's Orthodox Church uh, here in College Station Texas, uh, which is under the Antiochian uh, Archdiocese of America with patriarch john the Tent. Um and that's that's where I am
0: <laughs> yeah so um <clears throat> yeah i i I attend a parish right now uh called the Resurrection of christ uh Russian Orthodox Church and um that is a Russian Orthodox Church under uh, the, uh, the Moscow Patriarch, a uh, Patriarch Kirill of Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I think what's so uh, striking about this is that um, for me, um, you know, uh, you know, the more I've, you know, I've been reading a lot of philosophy, reading a lot of, I mean, a lot of stuff, and. You start realizing that um, we always technically have a motive, uh, a, a t loss, and and for me, I think circumstance had to had to prevail in order for me to actually go to the Orthodox Church. I think I was quite complicit because there wasn't an obvious liberalism in uh, the Anglo-Catholic Church that I was part of, the ACC so mm-hmm. so because there was no apparent liberalism you know i didn't think of hey i should i should just go but i i, I do think that what became very very apparent to me uh when i left that movement uh due to due, due to circumstance ma- mainly was that anglicanism was a dying church because we were yeah. probably uh, anything that is historical orthodox Anglicanism that actually follows what the English church believed in its inception was very rare in the South African context. Uh, uh, The Church of England in Southern Africa is extremely liberal. Um, It is pretty much, I think, sometimes more liberal uh, in, in some places than the Episcopalian Church of the United States. And for me, realizing that we had only 20 people on a Sunday. You know, what was very, very interesting to me is that the bishop of that particular church that I was a part of. And so t- to this day, they, they continue. Um, B- bishop Allen has long since joined the Lord. Um, I, I don't believe that he, you know, that he's, that he's not uh, w- with the Lord. But he was extremely Eastern in the way that he spoke of God. And when I came to Korea, I I asked myself the question because I was ordained as an as an uh, as a as an Anglo Catholic deacon. So the question for me was because I do take it seriously. I have made an oath, and I I don't think that it was just play, play you know playing around with LARPing with orders. I yeah I I don't think it was LARPing. I think something really big happened there. But for me, how was I going to be faithful to this Anglicanism that I, that I became a part of? How was I going to be faithful to this? And I reasoned that only by joining the Orthodox Church, as, as it is in Korea, was I able to be faithful to the Anglican uh, patrimony. I do believe that that is the future of Anglicanism. If you are serious about what the serious Anglo-Catholic theologians of the of of the you know the earlier times believed uh, of the Celts and all of that, I really do believe that Eastern Orthodoxy offers uh, Anglicanism a, a way to transcend uh, the madness of current. Uh, Anglicanism, in a way that I don't think the ACNA, the RCE, I I, I really do think it's a dying breed, and for good reason. Um, yeah, I think, and I, I, I mean, just j- just to say this, um, when you read, I mean, this is going to surprise some people, but I mean, for people who know me, they they know I kind of read that stuff. I have a couple of liberal anglican books uh, that kind of defends lgbt you know stuff and i mean i'm not on that on the same page as that um but what 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 is what is very um very interesting about that even though i'm not necessarily on the same page as all of that stuff is that they're trying to keep something alive um that that i think they realize won't survive in Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. It just wouldn't. Um, So, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing is that, you know, to our listeners, and I think Maverick would agree with me here, you know, we didn't necessarily leave Anglicanism out of resentment or out of, uh, you know, because, oh, they're going liberal, I need a church that's not liberal. That's, I mean, that, that would probably be a much more secondary reason for me um, because I actually liked a lot of the things in the Anglican Church. I really liked uh, praying the BCP and, and you know, a lot of the liturgy and things like that. Um, for me, it came down to the question is, you know, if there is one church, which is what the Nicene Creed says, where is that church? And when I looked at the Anglican Church as a whole, that's not just the Anglo-Catholics, but... Um, even, you know, the Church of England, the, uh, the uh, you know, Episcopal Church, and all these other folks who claim themselves as Anglican. Um, all I had to say is, I'm like, man, this, this cannot be the church that Christ founded. I mean, it's so divided amongst itself. I mean, the whole, quote, street three streams of Anglicanism, even if you're a devout Anglo-Catholic, which, um, which I, I would say I probably was. Um, and, you know, you're still, that, that, that stigma of like, oh, yeah, well, what about, what about these Anglicans that are not like you? What about these Anglicans that are, you know, basically charismatics, you know? Um, that stigma hangs over you, but, you know, that was really a secondary issue. Um, I had already believed so many Eastern theologies, which I wouldn't say, I'd say calling it Eastern is kind of a really bad mislabeling. I just think it's Christian. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I already believed a lot of things that were believed and taught in the Eastern church. And I kind of had an because the Anglican church would tolerate me having those beliefs, but of course that they would never be cultivated in that particular communion. But, but, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for where God has brought me. Um, it's been a long trip to finally get here. Um, but I am knocking on the door of the church as a catechumen and, uh, I think God is doing many wonderful, good things, uh, not only in my life and the life of my immediate family, but the life of my extended family who is seeing this journey we're going on. Um, and I think it's an incredible witness to what Christ can do and what Christ will do um, if you allow him to do so in your life. And, uh, but uh, that's not going to say that things have been uh, all uh, you know, wine and roses, so to speak. Um, there have definitely been challenges and maybe this will be a good segue to what we were going to talk about, um, Eric, but, um, <clears throat> like, for example, um, with my immediate family, my mom, my dad and others like that, and my extended family who sort of been looking in on my family and ice conversion, um, this it's been received mostly positive. Um, I would say 98% of the time it's been positive, um, I know many of them are curious, and many of them are learning a great deal um, and finding finding a great deal of enlightenment. And I'm sure there's some of my extended family who may actually come to church with me. Um, Will they become catechumens is yet to be seen. But there's the other side of that coin. Um, Other friends, uh, other you know, mainly friends, not family, but um, who look at me and my family as um, apostatizing. Um, as leaving the true Christian faith and pursuing something that says it's Christian, so to speak, but is foreign to um, anything, quote, taught in the Bible, which I would disagree, obviously, but um, mainly that comes from uh, friends who I had who were Calvinists and uh, who honestly look at Orthodox and Catholic Christians and, basically see us as apostates, and some of them even use the word heretic um has that been your experiences too uh deacon maverick or maverick oh, sorry, um, calling you deacon <laughs> uh
0: well i mean I, I i don't like using using the i i had when people call me deacon um and i'm and, sorry <laughs>
1: So I mean, I, I don't,
0: I, 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 I don't really mind it. I mean, as long as it's clear to the people that the kind of deacon I am is not one within the Orthodox Church, I'm. I, yes, I would say I'm that sorry. I, I, well, well, I mean, you know, some people still call me reverend, and from a, you know, from a certain perspective, I, I, I don't deny that. I, I still get called that in a lot of documents because there is sort of a, a sense that. And I think we even share that in the East, where someone doesn't stop becoming that thing, even though they, you know, in a right. necessarily schismatic body. So, um, yeah, I, I have a lot of people that still read. I, I just prefer Reverend over, but but just call me, you know, Maverick for those people yeah. who, who, who are wondering. Yeah, because, I don't, yeah, I don't
1: want you to get in trouble with your current church. So,
0: but 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 yeah, I, they they know about that stuff anyway, so it's not a big deal. But um. But, uh, you know, you know, I have been called a heretic and all sorts of things by some of my friends on, you know, some of these people I don't even know personally. I, I know them for a while, some of them only on Facebook and stuff, but I, I could feel that there was a pushback to what I had done, you know, and what was the thing that I had done. Yeah. I had abandoned Protestantism. I think that was actually a lot harder and... This is a bit of a there's a bit of a difference there, and I and I I don't know why it might may, maybe it maybe it's just the difference in our own context. But people shunned me when I left Protestantism, uh, and a large number of it I could feel um, speaking to some people that they just didn't want to speak to me, and whether or not it was in my head, you know you could you could claim that right but sure. when other people start saying the same things like why are those people acting that way then you start realizing that there is sort of a you know a pushback like you're not part of us um you left our church you this and 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 do and that and 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 that's okay but um i i can remember some people just telling me that uh they they no longer see the young man who was passionate for God, but someone who has uh, given himself over to things which are not profitable. And um, you know, I'm not taking the Bible seriously. And I mean, sure, if if you want to go that way, I, I I tend to be very skeptical of people who make claims like that and i mean even even when those people are orthodox so i'm not i'm not picking up picking on anyone i i think there's a prevalence in the protestant culture which i came from that tends to dismiss things which just doesn't sound like the way they've been doing things all along so it's just no 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 none of that that theosis stuff none of that um crazy weird catholic looking stuff we we don't want that and um I, I think you know just being very uh humble in the way that re- i relate to other people's people's groups and stuff um i have some really good relationships with some Buddhists and, um, you know, in non-Christian religions and stuff. And it's sometimes an indictment towards um, Protestantism that, I I mean, I don't want to say this because it's, it's such a controversial statement, but um, I don't think I could ever go back to the world of Protestantism again. And I mean, it's everything because that was the reason I stopped being a Calvinist is because it was a, it was almost a pastoral crisis. The, the the question was, I mean, one one issue was you have books in the Bible, and if you are aware of Calvinism, uh, Calvinism states that some people and not others are saved. And okay, I'm not gonna I'm gonna try not to mischaracterize what Calvinists say, but I, I don't I don't see how logically that doesn't equal um, equal ultimacy. But we'll just uh, leave that. with and and speak about infralapsarianism, that God has predestined only some, right? So sure. God has predestined not some and not others. So And Calvinists also say, well, we don't know, and they use this distinction between visible and invisible church. We don't really know, ultimately, who are the elect. And Spurgeon spoke about this. It's a multitude no man can number, but at the same time, ultimately, you don't really know who they are. Um, right. And for me, there's a there's a pastoral disjunct between the Bible then, and so so the question becomes: Saint Paul clearly wasn't did you know Paul didn't have special abilities to read people's minds and to see their hearts and you know wear the elect goggles. So was Paul really? Um, could he sincerely? Refer to them as God's elect. I mean, I don't have the passages um, offhand. Let me just get my um, yeah. But but first, first and second Peter speaks about you know to God's elect. The the epistles are addressed to God's elect. Um, and in the Paul Pauline epistles, it says as God's elect do such and such. Um, where where is that verse? Uh, I think it's in Thessalonians. Uh, put on. I'm trying to get the verse. But the, 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 the fact of the matter is, oh, yeah, Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as the elect of God, as God's chosen ones, uh, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, uh, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So it says to put on these things. And so the question is, if you don't know who the elect are and ultimately, you know, are concepts like evanescent grace. The, the idea that you can deceive yourself into believing that you had the grace of God. The question for me was was one of a pastoral significance. How could I sincerely teach people these things if there's no assurance? There's only this idea that I could be deceiving myself and then tell them they ele- the elect of God. Um, mm-hmm. I had spoken to pastors about this, but I don't really think they had an answer. And that was really telling.
1: Yeah, and then I could see where you'd have a very serious crisis, you know, both mentally, spiritually, psychologically. I mean, if you could fool yourself into thinking that you are elect, and but then, you know, by whatever measure you measure that you're elect, usually most Calvinists will say your, uh, your works, your good works. Um, but, I mean, that could even deceive you if you're not one of the elect, and then you die and find out you're not. Um, that's a pretty dangerous position to put somebody into that you can't really tell who's in and who's out. Um, you can't tell, um, you know, who's a Christian and who isn't. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a very dangerous place to be in. I mean, at and that then point, you might as well not try.
0: And then you have some of the more radical forms of uh, Cal- Calvinism taught by people like Paul Washer, where this sure this idea, you know, and he likes to use second Corinthians thirteen five, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith, or do you not recognize this concerning yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test. And so there's this absolute disjunct from an incarnational uh, relation to God, this this understanding that the sacraments and physical things that God has united himself to the physical world, there's this disjunct that I really don't think. Contrary to what Protestant think Protestants think, when they are speaking of their justification by faith, when it's supplemented by this kind of Calvinism, I don't think someone can ever have um peace with God. I think that you can have anxiety about God because, I mean, if you pay attention, pay attention to it, Calvinists will say, well, God had to smite you last night. And um, I, I have to say this because I couldn't say it anywhere else. But if you really get down to it, this idea that God will smite you and that God trampled underfoot Jesus under the wrath of God and these depictions of God is to inevitably depict God as a moral monster. This is not a God that merits the worship of his creatures. And I don't say this to kind of shock value people. I say this really, really connecting to God. Um, I mean, Luther's dilemma, and that's so ironic about Luther. Luther would would ask questions, you know, does he love God? You know, sometimes I hate God. And I I believe um, that way of thinking is deeply ingrained when I speak to a lot of Calvinists, it's deeply ingrained in the daily living of most Calvinists.
1: I, I would agree with that because probably towards my, I would say, later midpoint and towards the end of my time as a Calvinist, um, those thoughts began to come to a head. Like, I knew the answer, like, you know, who are you, like, a favorite, you know, like for example, if I said, man, you know, if I thought for a minute, like, man, God has predestined some people – hell, you know, before they're even born, you before they're even conceived, you know, as some some even as babies uh, who will die as babies. And I thought, and I'm like, well, I mean, man, I'm like, I really have a problem with this. And then I, I, you know, the answer that I've been told is like, well, who are you, old man, to answer back to God, or sort of the presuppositional argument, well, God decides what's right, not you, so therefore, you know, you're the one that's in the wrong because you dare question God's way. Um, And yeah, I think that you're absolutely right to point that out Maverick is that um you know this is a question that Calvinists at the very least wrestle with every day and that some of them are depressed by it, but just don't dare voice that opinion especially in in you know circles of their peers when those things legitimately concern them. And I think the other thing is that you know, when when you've been in that movement, like like you and I were, we were ardent defenders of Calvinism. Um, we defended it on, you know, in public. We defended it with our, our Christian friends and peers. You know, we defended it in our Bible studies. I was I led Bible study at my Calvinist church um, for, um, I can't remember if it was about a year or less than that, but um, but you know, I defended it. You know, I I believed that doctrine you know, quite ardently. But it's but the probably the most shocking thing is that those who think I've apostatized and left the faith, um, is they say, Well, you never understood Calvinism. Otherwise you never would have left Calvinism. You never would have abandoned that soteriology. And of course this is very revealing that this is how they understand that Calvinism is quote the gospel. Calvinism is um, you know, the way that we have to understand salvation. If you don't do this then you you're blinded to the truth or you've rejected the truth or something like that. And you know one of the things I think that you and I can demonstrate right here uh, Maverick is that we actually do understand Calvinism. It is totally possible to understand a belief system, a soteriology, and still reject it. And. I, yeah. You know, let's just take for example uh, tulip, for example. Um, let's start with the first one. I'll define. I'll define total uh, the first T in tulip, and then you can define uh, unlimited uh, or unconditional election, and then we'll go through these. So the first one, uh, total depravity. Total depravity is the belief that uh, our progenitor uh, Adam and Eve, uh, that when they transgressed God's commandment in the garden. And ate of the forbidden fruit that um, God um, had uh, basically enacted a curse upon the land and upon humanity, uh, cutting them off from the tree of life and um, as a punishment for their sins. And that did so, there was an ontological change that happened in our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, to where their nature became sinful. Um, that they uh, basically changed to the point to the level of uh, basically what you would understand as a demon. And um, that they, um, every thought of their heart, every uh, disposition they had, every action they did was basically um, oriented towards rebellion against God. and that their will is no longer free, but enslaved to this corrupted, sinful nature that they inherited, uh, or that they uh, unleashed upon themselves and upon their progeny. Um, and the problem with this is that when um, a person began, a person can never do anything good that is pleasing to God because that person is enslaved to their will. Many um, times you'll hear a Calvinist say that you only do what your you only do that which is in accordance with your nature, and so what Calvinists will say is that mankind is totally depraved. Um, he has no goodness, no inherent goodness in him whatsoever. So there, he does that which is evil. Now that's not to say that a person cannot do something which we would find morally good, like give a child a cup of cold water, but that even that action, when not done in faith, or not done um, unto Christ, or done, um, you know, in a regenerate manner, is still inherently sinful at its core, because of the actual motive that is born out of your nature. So in other words, the total depravity says that mankind is so corrupt, so fallen, and the image of God either marred or, in some cases, destroyed, depending on how extreme the Calvinism we're talking here, that man simply cannot choose God. He simply cannot uh, choose to follow after God. He cannot. He will not cry out to God. He will. He would rather spit in God's face, so to speak, um, than repent of his sin. So, therefore, man is enslaved uh, to his sin. Would you say that's correct, Maverick, or would you define that differently?
0: Yeah, so... So 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 yeah, I I think you probably maybe used a lot of orthodox terms, maybe um,
1: to, to kind of
0: yeah, and, and and I and I think that that that's great because um you know, uh, it it kind of like shows how we've kind of uh you know how we kind of assessing all of those things, and so mm-hmm. yeah, and so so I think Calvinist probably. You know, what they're saying is, well, they they, they not defining it properly. But um, sure. what Calv- the, 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 the crux of what Caleb was getting to was that from a Reformed perspective, the Reformed perspective basically says that man is not as sinful as he could be, but that sure. man is completely affected by sin. And so they say that man has become the slave of sin. But what's important to note here is that, as Caleb noted they say that we have inherited the sin nature. So in a Calvinist perspective, man is a sinner because of his nature. So it's not because man sinned that makes him the sinner. It's that that is already what is his inherent condition. And that's something that I think we wouldn't necessarily agree on. But, um, you know, there's there's this perspective that you are now enslaved to sin, right? But notice what Jesus says in John 8. John, John 8, Jesus doesn't say um, you are a slave to sin and therefore you commit the slave of sin. It seems like he's going the other way around. He's saying he who sins is the slave of sin. So when you give in to sin, this voluntary choice, then you become a slave to sin. And then he goes on for the truth will set you free. Now, we're not going to speak about that particular issue. But um, I think there's good reason to say that uh, th- that perspective that Caleb, you know, had um, just told us about that we are that we cannot make any choice um, in favor of God. I think there's good reason to reject that. And Romans seven verse seven to 25 really outlines this. Now, Romans seven verse seven to 25 tells us the things we cannot do. It's not that we mm-hmm. cannot do any good. The question is, the, the, the issue is is that we cannot completely keep the law. Now this is a very different state, status. You will notice that in Romans seven verse seven to 25, a man can have a good desire. He can desire. He And I'm going to read, read this because some Calvinists, and actually many, would read it after a specific tradition in the church that sees Romans 7 verse 7 to 25 as speaking about the regenerate Christians struggling with sin. But what you will notice here is that when Paul does speak about the waging of the flesh and the spirit and you know this 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 tussle this supposed tug of war for lack of a better word however this is not the way paul speaks in romans 7 verse 7 to 25. he says what shall we say then is the law sin god forbid nay i had not known sin but by the law for i had not known lust, except the law had said thou shalt not covet verse 8 but sin taking occasion by the commandment ruined me all manner of co- concupiscence for without the law sin was dead for I was alive without the law once but when the commandment came sin revived and I died and the commandment which was ordained to life I found unto death verse Hmm. 11 for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and it slew me so here we have this idea you know where Jesus says out of the heart comes all sorts of evils Now, what it doesn't say, obviously, when Jesus says from the heart proceeds all of these things, is that it necessarily proceeds from the heart. It's it's very, we should note that. It said, wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin that it may appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful for we know that the law is spiritual but i am carnal sold under sin. sin now this is very important it it's sort of telling us something very very obvious it's saying that we were we are carnal sold under sin that doesn't sound like a christian um right for that which i do uh, do i allow not for what i would that i do not but now that is It is not no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, for I that in me that is in good, uh, for I that is in my uh, flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not, for the good I would not do it, but the evil which I would not, I would do. Uh, yeah. Verse 20, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For, and they're, they're very interesting, he says, verse 22, for I delight the, in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another in the law of my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. Then he says, verse 24, o wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God and with my flesh, the law of sin. But what's so very apparent here is that Paul is saying, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? In chapter 6, he just told us in baptism, that is exactly what, ha- what happens. The old man is the thing that is buried. So it doesn't make sense to say that this particular passage is speaking about the saved person. But I think what it does tell us is, is the nature of the sinfulness that works in us. It's not that everything we do is sinful, but it's that sin has affected us and we are no longer to keep the law perfectly. And that's why we need the grace of God to help us. And that is given to us in baptism. I don't think... Yeah, I think it quite clearly shows us that we des- we can desire to do that which is pleasing to God without being able to do that which is pleasing to God. That's very different. Where we kind of recognize always, it's not that our minds are so clouded that we're unable to see the goodness of God. I think in yeah. this verse what it's telling us is that we can recognize God and still reject him.
1: Right, and where we would, and here's the thing, what I would say to Protestants who says, well, that just sounds like Pelagianism. Um, what I would say is, like, well, no, absolutely not, because we do believe we need the grace of God to turn and repent. But furthermore is that we would agree with Protestants that that Jesus is the good shepherd who comes looking for us, right? He's the mm-hmm. initiator of salvation. He is the one calling to us. We didn't go looking for him. He called us, right? Um, we, we would agree with that. There's, there's no disagreement there. Um, the other thing... I that, well, many Calvinists and others, and maybe even some Lutherans, would say, "Well, well, wait a minute. Then what do you do with Jeremiah 17 verse 9? And I'm going to read it here from the King James Bible, and that, and that is, "The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it?" Right. And well, here's the thing. Um, while that that might sound like an open and shut case, right. Um, I would say, well, you're reading the Masoretic Text. And I won't get too deeply into this, but the Masoretic Text is the the uh, Old Testament um, Bible that was used, that, or this is the Old Testament that is used um, for most of your modern Protestant Bible translations, the KJV, the NKJV, RSV, the NRSV, all those kind of things. And the Masoretic Text was written by a group of Jews who, were the spiritual descendants of the Pharisees and who basically wrote down what is today the accepted 39-book uh, uh, canon of Orthodox Judaism today, which is rabbinical Judaism and not the Judaism practiced by um, the patriarchs at, by any stretch of the imagination. And the, uh, the thing is, that is not the Bible whom, the, whom Jesus quoted from. Um, or who Paul, St. Paul quoted from, or the church Fathers quoted from. Uh, the Bible they would have been quoting from the Old Testament would have been the Septuagint, which the Septuagint, ironically enough, um, is the standard of Old Testament, uh, the standard for the Old Testament of, uh, used in the Orthodox Bible to this, to this day and used in the Divine Liturgy for today. And when you read Jeremiah 17 verse9, um, in the Septuagint, it says the heart is deep beyond all things, and it is the man and who can know him. That's drastically different from the Masoretic text. Um, now, we could get into reasons why the church trusts the, the Septuagint and over the Masoretic and all that kind of stuff. But the point is, um, proof texting like that really doesn't help at the end of the day. Um, it's just simply pulling a verse, you know, from the Bible and saying, "See, that proves it." But the thing is, I just pulled a verse from the Bible too, from the same exact passage, and it says something which is not even the same. So the question is, who has the better translation? And I think if we look at, you know, church history, I think the Septuagint comes out on top objectively. Um, but yeah, total depravity um, just doesn't make sense when you read the scriptures as as Maverick exegeted there for us uh, through um, those passages he gave to us. You know, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to think that man is so enslaved into sin um, by the sin of our first parents, you know, being passed on to us, the genetic guilt, if you will, um, that, you know, that we, that, I mean, it just really makes these verses make no sense whatsoever. And furthermore, I would say that. Um, In the East especially, and this is how you know that Eastern Orthodoxy doesn't have the same set of uh, philosophical presuppositions as the West does, is that we have this thing called the energy-essence distinction, which is different from divine simplicity. It's not even the same as the West understands divine simplicity. And we would say that man has the image of God. You know, That's one of the things that makes humanity unique, is, is bearing the image of God. And um, we would contend that that is an uncreated energy from God uh, or an uncreated operation, shall we say, from God. And the thing is, how do you you corrupt something which comes from God in that way? That is, you know, part of, or, or I don't like to use that word, but let's just say part of God's identity is the fact that he has an image and that image is imparted to mankind. How do you corrupt something like that? Which is God, right? And the answer is you can't, right? No matter, you could cover it up, you uh, tarnish it, you could dirty it up, you could, you know, soil it, but you can't destroy it.
0: So maybe, um, I know this is a a lot, maybe we can go on for 30 minutes more, but um, this is such a big, big big issue. Maybe we can spend another episode on this, but um, I I think we can. It really. It, it it really goes into I think the the error in thinking the, in thinking of redemptive history as simply uh, you know the the removal of sin right like because that's what pro- the, the the assumption is um, are we saved from sin but if you if one reads Saint, Saint Irenaeus um, for one um, this is not what the idea is the, I think. I don't like to speak about hypotheticals, but if there were no fall, right, Mm -hmm. I still think there would be a necessity for salvation. It's not the same thing. And so um, St. Irenaeus, he speaks about how Adam and Eve were childish. They were ignorant. And um, maturity is how they, they move in wisdom towards that state. And sin was only the consequence in that sense of man's ignorance. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this actually makes sin, I think, from our perspective, a lot more, We I think we take se- sin a lot more serious, because it's not this brute, uh, deni- you know, re- um, sin against God's law, simply something that's written down. But it is an ontological issue.
1: Yeah, um, cosmic a disease, chaos. if you will.
0: Yeah, and so this is this is a lot different, and this is why we need an ontological remedy. And so... Because we started a different place, um I think where the Calvinist would then go to something like unconditional election, I think that's where um I think do you do you want to explain what unconditional election is uh, sure, kind of um yeah,
1: yeah, so unconditional election, so um when you understand what predestination is in Calvinism, this is the idea that God has um, before the beginning of time itself um, has chosen which people he will save and which people he will damn, not based on anything they have done, but simply out of the counsel of his own will. And you'll have some Calvinists who say that um, God, you know, has a purpose in this, but it's just not given to us. But either way, um, and basically unconditional election is, is that he chooses people to save um, based on Absolutely no pre existing condition. Um, and this is where you get, for example, they will cite Romans 9 that, um, that God loved Esau or loved Jacob and not Esau, and that before the twins had done anything good or bad, you know, he had already preordained that the older would serve the younger so that the purpose of election might stand. Um, so, yeah. That's basically unconditional election in a nutshell. That God chooses to save you or damn you, based not on any merit or anything within you. Hmm.
0: Uh, yeah. And so they they have this concept of unmerited, uh, unconditional election. That uh, yeah, that that it's ultimately the the reason for this decision is based in God. But but I, I can't help but think that this is somewhat of a sinister. Um, approach, because what it does is, I mean, Calvinists will quote verses in the Bible that say things like, the secret things belong unto God, mm-hmm. um, you, you, you know, and, and, and all of that. But, but, but as we said before, um, when God is depicted in the Bible, right, the God of Jesus, the God revealed in the face of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when we speak about that God, um, even though we would quite strongly advocate for an apophatic reading, of the old covenant um, texts and all of that and that needs to be read in context with the the New Testament apostolic interpretation of that. What becomes very, very interesting is that words don't seem to mean anything. I mean, give you one example, God as father and God as love, what does that mean? Well, obviously, we have a. I mean, Caleb, you're a father. You know what that means, right? Oh. Um, just now, now, Calvinists try to say, yeah, well, God is a mystery. And they try to actually use our own apophatic card against us, right? And they say, well, God is a mystery. You don't understand that. So, so this is something that I would really push back and say even though God is different or uh, ontologically different from our understanding doesn't mean that God is infinitely contrary to our understanding. This is very important Mm. because then any cataphatic statement, any positive statement of God doesn't mean anything. Um, And from a Calvinistic perspective, why God would choose some and not others um, I, I actually heard Matt Slick from Calm.org. I mean, the, the name says it all. But um, <laughs> if, if uh, you know, he says, these, his response is, you know, someone says, well, that's not a loving thing. And on, I think it was just the Calvinist Corner website, he says, well, that is a... A loving thing, because God is deciding to love some and not others. And all that I could say is, because Calvin denied this, by the way, Calvin denied that love is the essence of God. He denied that love defines what God is to that extent, right? And for Mm -hmm. for me, Isaac, God is love. I'm not going to caveat that with with anything. God is love. And so the, the, the problem with I think the Calvinist view is that God then, you, you, when, when you say God chooses some and not others, God is deciding to be God sometimes and not others. Think about that a bit. Mm. Um, if God can choose not to be loving, then mm. God can choose not to be God against right. some, some people. And and th- this, again, um, is very different in the East, where uh, we don't think about it like that. I mean, we we think of hell as the fire of God's love. I mean, right. everything from us is so different and, and we don't need to make these statements of specificity. And in the East, we would correctly say, and I mean, maybe, you know, we would say, the difference is your experience of that objective reality. It's not that God is not wanting to love you um it's right. not that god desires you not to be saved no it's you are actually experiencing this in a different way and that's a key i think to us understanding the wrath of god and thing things like that
1: um right and then that, to, that uh, for example father andrew stephen Damick and father uh stephen D young they talk about death by holiness in the bible um especially mm-hmm. in the old testament. Um, you know, and they said this is, like, for example, when God says to Moses, you know, I'm going to, you know, wipe out these people. It's not that God was happy at one minute and angry at the next. Um, he's just like, God is always love. But the thing is, he's like, I'm going to expose myself in full glory to these people and consume them because, let's face it, holiness is dangerous. I mean... Other instances where that happened is when Nadab and Abihu were, were consumed by the flame of the altar. Um, you have where Uzzah in uh, David's kingdom was killed for touching the ark, you know, those sort of things. I mean, holiness is like basically spiritual nuclear energy, and God is purely that, and that's what, that's what love is. Love is dangerous. Um, you know, I think the thing is, is we live in a culture that's sort of relegated love to being, you know, flowers, puppies, and, and you know, Valentine hearts. Um, but I'm sorry, it's just not that. Um, it, it's very positive. Sure, God God is love. He, love is a person, and it's good, and it's holy, and it's amazing. But for those who choose to be opposed to that, it is the most dangerous thing in the world, you know? And that's why we say the fire of hell is, is the fire of God's love, um, you know, being uh, exposed to the people who choose to be opposed to it, um, you know, so that sort of thing. It's very
0: interesting, though, that um, St. Isaac the Syrian, he says, you shouldn't be afraid of God because of the majesty of his glory. You should actually be afraid of him because he's love. And that... that that, that is a very, I think, strange thing for, uh, I think, many evangelicals to ponder. Like, well, why would that be a bad thing? And it's like, well, do, do, you, really, do you really want to start this conversation? I mean...
1: Well, it's a long um, rabbit hole conversation. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like, I mean, but, uh, I think... Yeah. yeah.
1: And so, But, I, but the, see, the one thing I hope you... is that... that, you know... on each other. So, like, if you have a totally depraved human who cannot... Do anything good and is at the worst of evil as can be, even though they're not acting as evil as they can be, then the only way they're going to be saved is for God to choose to save them by election, right? And uh, but then that sort of leads us into the third part of Tulip, which is limited atonement, and this is the idea that um, the people whom God has elected, God will not fail. To save so therefore he has with the death of Christ and this is where penal substitution is uh, really important to understanding Calvinist soteriology but God has enacted his just and holy wrath upon the Son um, and because of that degree of wrath he has enacted upon the Son the punishment he was going to divvy out to the elect has fallen upon Jesus Christ. and because of that, then the, those whom he has chosen to regenerate and save, that he will not fail to do so. And because he is only meted out a limited of, amount of, of punishment and also grace and also redemption, therefore it's only going to save those whom He intended it to save. This is why Calvinists will say things like, for example, um, well, if God did this for all of mankind, then um, everyone would be saved and therefore universalism would be true. And what I would say is that if the Calvinist and Lutheran scheme regarding penal substitutionary atonement in relation to how salvation works is true, here's a hint, it's not an orthodoxy, it's considered heresy. Um, if, but let's just say, let's just say the Calvinist and um, uh, understanding of penal substitution and salvation is true, then yes, that if if God did that for all people, then universalism would be absolutely true. Um, but the thing is, limited atonement makes no sense. Um, this is where I think Calvinism really starts to shoot itself in the foot. So, for example, I mean, let's just bring out some very common examples. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And then you have, um, you know, uh, the epistles of St. Peter. Denying the the Lord Lord who bought them. Right. And then you have the epistles of St. John, who says he is not only our Savior, but also of the whole world. Right. This makes no sense with the idea of limited atonement, that God could be the Savior, that Christ could be the Savior of the world whenever it's so limited to a a precious few elect, right? Not only does that not make sense, but in the ancient context, this idea of almost individualism in some ways simply doesn't make sense. The idea is that when we say that Christ is the Savior of mankind, mankind is thought of in the collective sense people were thought of as a collective you were never thought of as an as an individual you you were understood and defined in your identity conferred about you know, upon you by those whom you associate with and those did with am i right
0: um yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Something that I think is very interesting about the way that the, the fathers constantly speak about human identity, and I, I mean, I. So, so I study Chinese characters. It's kind of part of my uh, studies for Korean. Um, I, I got it on my desk here. Your first hunter guide, but when you look at the, um, the, 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 the identity of what it means to be a person. People are always seen as co-humanity. It's not that one person can be isolated from the story, and so the question becomes: Can God desire to save some, as Calvinists say, save because, as Calvinists think of God saving? Because James White makes this point. He says God can save all people. He can save some people, or he can save no people, but what's so interesting is that he says, only if God chooses some people is God's grace free. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to begin with that, and my first question would be, why? There's no, he he hasn't actually substantiated why it is that God has to choose some people. Maybe God freely wants to, freely desires the salvation of all people. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is just not very common, and um, what you will find is, is that the fathers always speak about the interconnectedness of people to such an extent. So you have two options, really, from an Eastern mindset. God can desire the salvation of all people, or God can desire the salvation of no people. Right. And it, it becomes very, very obvious that First Timothy 2 says, God desires the salvation of all people. What's very interesting is that um, there's a way in which God is the Savior of all men, even those who do not cooperate with that grace um Mm -hmm. and the bible says that god is the salvation of all people especially of those who believe so so if it is that unconditional election is true or that because Calvinists like to say that right they say god can only be the savior of people if he actually saves them you know if he actually saves them in this in this life um and so the the question is well the bible says that god is the savior of all men yeah and so th- th- this is this is so interesting you know to me is that th- th- it's just so it, they don't th- they, there is no realization that um that this is that god's intent is not to you know to withhold himself from everyone anyone you know and so i i think it it it, it is a false way of looking at the person as some kind of isolated figure because whenever salvation is mentioned it always does it in the context of the church. Mm-hmm. but what is very interesting is that you know the the first that Calvinists use all those who have been justified will be glorified and stuff is that it's speaking about those who have been justified it wouldn't make sense to say that he is justified singular the bible seems to always play place two emphasis on salvation the thing that salvation the time of salvation firstly which is we have been saved we are being saved we will be saved and then there's the other you know the other aspect of that is that we are saved in a group. We're not saved as individuals. When I become baptized as a person, I am saved into a community. Mm-hmm. It's that I go with the church through the waters of baptism. It's not this isolated event um, where I say a prayer and then I become part of this, you know, the, the, this thing. It's it's really a strange way of looking at it. And if if the Calvinist idea of penal substitution for some people were true um not only would the book of hebrews not make sense but you would expect if calvinism were true for the bible to say for god so hated the world
1: mm-hmm.
0: that he gave his only begotten son but that's not that the the idea is that there's a free offer of grace to all people and all people who believe in him will be saved i think that's quite a, quite clear it's not this idea of um well, I'm going to pick some people and they're going to, you know, I, I, I don't even know, you know, you have to be told about Calvinism, I think, to, to come to that conclusion. I don't think uh, a common sense reading, uh, you know, you know, of this uh, really makes sense when you look at this and then you say, wow, this, this clearly speaks about limited, limited aton- atonement. I think prima facie, the Bible, is not Calvinist. And that, I think, is yeah. very, very, uh, you know, it's, it's noteworthy.
1: <clears throat> Absolutely. And that brings us into the next point, which is irresistible grace. Idea that um, the person who was elected of God, who was atoned for by the work of Christ, that god has planned it so well and predestined it so that when he sent to repent they will not resist the grace that he has given them to repent that they will repent this is also why calvinists will say that well ultimately the elect will never repent and those and God will not regenerate them, or at least if they're honest, they'll admit that God will not regenerate them. Um, this sort of idea, idea of irresistible grace, um, it basically it's the idea that you cannot say no to salvation if you are elect. Whether you, of course, the Calvinists will always say that you will always like it if you're elect, um, and. Um, to um, the, the next point but hopefully we won't get to that point but the problem with with um, irresistible grace is that you get into passages such as when Jesus Jerusalem says you know O Jerusalem Jerusalem you who kills the prophets how long I have longed to gather you um, under my as a chicken gathers her under her wings Right. And then he also, there's also other passages uh, in the Bible that speak of uh, resisting God's grace. So, for example, the parable of the sower, God or Jesus speaks about um, the seed, the word of God, being sown on different kinds. The pathway, which is made of stone. You have the rocky ground, which is a mixture of soil and rock. You have the thorny ground and then you have the good soil. And he mentions that the seed that falls on the hard ground is snapped, which are representative of the dead. Uh, where the seed takes root, it doesn't get roots. And then and you, you have, have the, uh, the one with the thorns, where the, the plant grows up and it starts to grow strong, but then the roots choke it out. And then you have the one on good soil, where the, the seed grows and then produces uh, a fruit yield. And the thing is here is that you have four different demonstrations of people who hear the word of God, and some receive it, and then abandon it for various different reasons, and then you have some who receive it, and the fruit grows. Again, that makes no sense if grace is irresistible. You have the example of Herod Agrippa when Paul was brought. Saint Paul was brought as you all be a christian and he even admits to paul that he heard you know felt a prompting from the holy spirit to become a christian he said you almost persuaded me and again how does anyone make sense of any of these passages with this understanding that calvinism brings with it of irresistible grace it just does not make sense
0: yeah and it's this idea you know of um Regeneration precedes faith. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really, it it just doesn't square up with what the Bible says. Regeneration ultimately, I think, happens. Um, uh, if you want to speak about where you can mark where regeneration happens, it would happen in the sacrament of Holy Baptism and Chrismation. That's that's yeah. the the full package, and we we don't separate those two, obviously. And I, I think. Um, Sorry, Catholics. <laughs> uh, it's I, I, I think it's it's really strange. Um, just to think of grace as, as as irresistible, um, because ultimately, um, there there's always this the the this concept that um, you know, we 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 are always ignorant, so unless someone is illuminated to the point of Knowing God so fully can, can can you ever say? But since 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 we don't know God, this side of eternity at least, um, can we ever claim to have that encounter with God where we always respond in faith? I think it is very clear from a scriptural perspective that we always need to renew our mind. We need to go, we need to regularly, continually have faith in God, um, mm-hmm. because there's the, there's this point that um grace even even there's never a time when we can say grace compels us to do something in that sense um it is always from a cooperation a synergistic um where we are cooperating with the divine and so i i you know i i don't think there's right. much that i could say and, and i mean honestly i think uh irresistible grace just falls when you don't permit the, this teaching so given the fact that i don't believe in total depravity unconditional election i think it is necessarily the f- the case that i cannot believe in irresistible grace
1: yeah and before... if you have
0: those things proven wrong then it's clear you you cannot believe
1: before anybody it jumps choose. on us is like oh you believe you can cooperate with god you believe that your works contribute something to salvation well I would say to those who who think that I'm like the Eastern Church does not have a juridical understanding of salvation. It's understanding understanding of, salvation. of salvation that is something the Protestant Church inherited from Rome, um, and so it's hard to say you can our, our works can merit to our salvation when we don't even terms of merit we understand salvation in terms of communion in terms of a loving relationship and in terms community, of community. And, and so it's like i don't see how you how you do like that's not here not there. there and that brings us next to the last point and that is the perseverance of the saints this is the idea that those who are elected. God who have been atoned for by Christ and who have received irresisting it um, will persevere, meaning that they will continue on this path, loving God, always um, obeying him, but for the most part obeying you know, producing More mature in the faith, and they will never, ever, ever fall away. The biggest Achilles' heel I see to this is not only the numerous warning passages throughout scripture about falling away from the faith, about rejecting the faith, um, and you know, eternal damnation. So, when Jesus says in the Gospels, that those who endure to the end shall be saved. The perseverance of the saints is the Pope inversion or of what Jesus, Jesus is says here. Is about salvation. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Well, if perseverance of the saints is true, then what Jesus should have said is that because you are saved, you will endure. Right? Because you are saved, you will endure. Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus said, the, 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 op- the opposite way of this. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. And I think this speaks massive volumes to how distorted the product of salvation is looked upon. Salvation is looked upon as a transaction between man and God, a legal declaration on Christ on behalf of the sinner. The other problem is, but the problem is, is that salvation is the meaning this. And it has much and many more applications. So, for example, when somebody asks if I'm saved and I reply, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved, there's a salvation not only of the soul, mind, there's it's also a salvation of your personhood. There is a salvation of the body that will come. The funny thing, we can say easily that Christ's atonement was universal because everyone is going to be resurrected from the dead regardless whether they're, they are not. universal salvation, the resurrection of the body. Now, will everybody like that? No, absolutely not. But yeah, perseverance of the saints just does not make sense. It makes sense with the rest of the four points of Calvinism because all these points are interwoven into each other and they don't make sense with you're missing one. But as far as making sense with scripture, sense with the fathers. Making sense with Jesus. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, the fathers talked constantly about people who would apostatize from the faith. One of the great controversies of the church, whether or not a person who had denied him in the face of persecution could ever come back out of this controversy, especially if they were a clergy for that.
0: It's very interesting, also when John six and John ten gets thrown into the mix, Um, Mm -hmm. you know. Or uh, John 6, verse 37 to 40, All the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me. Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But what's very, very interesting is that... um, Throughout all of this, and I, I actually want to, I wrote a paper on this, uh, the, 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 you know, is when Jesus says all of these things, is he always excludes Judas, except the son of uh, destruction that the scripture may be fulfilled. So there's always a condition, even in those texts, that speak of the ability to lose salvation. Um, Jesus is not saying that it's unable to fall away. Jesus, because he's, sa- he's saying that he does everything which is pleasing to the Father, but at the same time, mm-hmm. he says there are some people who do fall away. Um, Judas just yes. fell away. So, so, so what? So, so why? So, if Jesus says accept, then there is an exception to the rule, and that means the rule is only general, not absolute. And so. But, and so it falls apart when you actually just listen to it. Just listen to it for, for because that didn't really make sense um, in John seventeen, um, when, when when he says these things. And I'm getting John seventeen um, up on my. Uh, yeah, so, so he says, all I have are yours. That's for John 17, verse 10. He says, all I have are yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, That the name, the name you gave me, so that uh, they may be one as we are one. I was with them, and now this is important. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost, except the one doomed to destruction, so the scriptures would be fulfilled. Now, this is the the NIV, but fact of the matter is there's an exception to the rule. The exception mm-hmm. cannot apply if this is an absolute statement. Mm-hmm. and And again, I also think people are overestimate uh, underestimate in this case the prophetic letter um, the prophetic sort of logic in this prophets usually make kind of broad statements like this like jesus is made it, making but what they're trying to do here is try to try to, to um hone hone in on a point mm-hmm. so so it's it's trying to say say this you know because jesus at the same time would say um you know you need to abide in me yeah. Um, and, he, and, he, and, you know, we, we need to keep ourselves in the name of God, in the love of God. So, yeah. And so this is very, very important, because unless you understand that, um, I think you're going to miss, I, I think, the numerous passages where... Paul, uh, the the book of Hebrews, where it's Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Hebrews 6 speaks about those who've been partakers of the Holy Spirit, and those who have fallen away, and he speaks in Hebrews 10 about there remains no longer sacrifice for sin. So, so, so I mean, it doesn't make any sense to say, it really doesn't make any sense to say, that you can fall away and make shipwreck of the faith. How can you make shipwreck of the faith if you're not in the boat mm-hmm. um it it did these these statements become nonsense pictures
1: um, yeah, you, Calvinist you were never saved to begin with, and it's because they have this distorted view of salvation as being only this one time thing that happened in the past that has this present reality that you simply assent to um This is what throws them off. love to have a title love... lawyer. Um, Exegete scripture with Calvinists. Because, for example, um, that passage where Jesus says, You know, know, whoever comes to me by no means cast out. Yeah. There, There comes this point where people read a passage, but that they make inferences from that passage that are not warranted. So, for example, you know, all those who come to me. I will by no means cast out. At face value, it says that those who come, Jesus will not cast out. And see what they'll say there is like. See, once you come to Jesus, He won't cast you out. So therefore, you cannot leave once you have been, you know, adopted into the family of God. As you. That That is not not. what that passage says. That passage says nothing about you not being able to fall away. In fact, it more so implies the opposite. Because here's the thing. He will not cast you out. He never said anything about you walking away. And I I think... which is that warn you to stay in the faith, to keep the faith, to fight the good fight, when you reconcile that with what Jesus says, I think it's very clear that's what that passage is saying. It's like, you, I'm not going to turn you away, but then you have Christ and the apostles, it's just about falling away, you can walk away, right? And that's see. This is what mm-hmm. you know. That's one thing we have to be careful of is we don't infer things or try to... from silence when we read. It's, it's not fair. It's not right. But anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Anything so I else? mean, that's that's it. Yeah. That's our little. Um... Little... You know, our perspective on Calvinist, Calvinism. And I mean, right. yeah, um, I think some people might process, yeah, well, what about this and what about that? I'm sure there are a lot of things we could have spoken about. But um, hey, at, 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 at the same time,
1: podcast,
0: Yeah, I mean, Caleb and I, uh, I mean, some of you guys know us on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, you can easily write to us. We We openly converse with people, maybe even call you. And I mean, there there has been some developments uh, in the past where uh, there have been some, but I mean, so some people don't really want to go through with that. It seems. Uh, of people who've challenged me to uh, a debate, I you was know, like, okay, let's 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 go, let's let's go go through things, and I was wanting the debate to go in a very specific direction let's speak about specific verses let's speak about specific doctrines not just calvinism broadly and um yeah i I, I opened myself to that scrutiny but i'm i'm just not going to accept the idea that i didn't know what calvinism was um i can remember in my first year of um of doing this and i even i had a subject on soteriology where i argued for a calvinistic perspective i knew what it was and and for calvin mm-hmm. uh, and caleb from from uh, you you told me that you did something in your thesis that related to your calvinistic perspective too right
1: yeah, yeah part, part of my yeah. uh, master's thesis was uh, basically a defense of double predestination um it was a huge uh, i kind of look back to that um Looking back at my thesis, and I'm like, man, I wish I could redo that. Um, I mean, I'm glad it got me my master's degree and everything. Master, write something to atone for that. (laughs) I wrote, but I, but but I mean, to that, yeah.
0: But no one can tell you that you didn't know what Calvinism was. I mean, it's such no. an irresponsible sta- statement to make. I mean, no one can tell me the same thing. I mean, guys, you don't understand. I've I defended the stuff in academia.
1: And you know, I would even say so. You know, I don't see Calvin like that. You know, like for example, like you know, what's to stop a Calvinist from saying, "Well, you left Islam simply because you didn't understand." Simply because, because you didn't understand, understand. Judaism. You left Catholicism because you simply didn't understand Catholicism. Um, now I'm not saying that people don't do that. Sure certainly there are people who without, without having understood it, it and they believed it. But there, there are people who actually understand it. their tradition who leave it because they understand it. And here's the thing, I'll be the first to admit Calvinism is a very logical system. It makes a lot of sense when you delve into it um, philosophically. Um, you could even probably make a very well-mounted defense using scripture, but the problem is that's not how the church has used scripture, and that is not. And what is logical is not always true. Um, so what I would say is, if you're going to understand the and sotiro- belief. Of the church by the apostles, by and taught by and brought brought in and taught by Christ, and that is explained and expounded in the scriptures. You need to read the scriptures through the lens of the people who wrote them down. And this way, it's just the historical, historical and, and archaeological data, um, is to read the scriptures with the fathers of the church. We literally have. Five well, more than five hundred years. We have well, yeah, mo- about five hundred years of writings of people, exp- you know, upon and interpreting the scriptures and making co- and putting them into a pattern by which we can understand and giving us a lens by which we can interpret them. The Ethiopian eunuch, for example, when he when Saint Philip. Uh, came up to his chariot, he asked him when he was reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how would I even know what this means unless somebody explained it to me? Right? This, and from what we understand, this Ethiopian eunuch was a Jew. From And there was a large Jewish community in Ethiopia. You know, he had been raised in the Jewish tradition. He... Un- um, you know, or at least he had heard the prophets read to him again and again and again. You know He was not stupid to the queen of Ethiopia. He was an educated man, and yet he had the humility to say to St. Philip, I don't understand this unless somebody is here to interpret and open my eyes to the truth. And what happened? And he explained Isaiah's prophecy to the Ethiopian eunuch. That is where the church comes in. Philip's example is the perfect precedential example for why the fathers are so important to understanding Scripture. So that's all I have to say to (laughs) that.
0: Yeah, so I mean, that's that.
1: Um, Yep, that's our first podcast. So Um, Maverick, should we end with a we'll say uh, maybe... A prayer to the Mother of God, and then we'll end with an Our Father, and we'll call it.
0: Uh, how about this? You can you can end with the Our Father because I I don't want the delay thing to happen. Sure, sure. So yeah. um, yeah. so so you can do that, and I'll just um, I just need to get my prayer book out here. Um, From... So yeah, I um. What prayer are we gonna? What am I gonna say? I, I mean, an acathist might be too long. <laughs> um, oh, I'll just do the 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 Byzantine um the Byzantine prayer to the Holy Spirit. O oh, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fullest all things, Treasury of good gifts and Giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every stain, O oh, gracious
1: Lord. Amen. Amen. And our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for joining us. Installment. Eucharistic and any suggestions suggestions for our show you know how to reach us on social media, Facebook Um, be sure to check out my other podcasts that I do for Freed Indeed Ministries if you want to see what my face looks like Um, I'm there with my other partner in crime, Kevin Hughes I also have my blog Ordinary Orthodoxy, which I haven't written in quite some time but I need to pick back up so you can always look for my articles there as well
0: Cool. and you guys know where to find me um, I have recently started um, paying more attention to my uh, YouTube channel so I'm going to hopefully have something up there soon and Yay. I'll just yeah and you guys know about my uh, blog Absolute Unknowing uh, that's that's the blog I have two other blogs out there that I still need to delete but um, I'll get to that uh, so yeah cool man cheers cool. Cheers. Good night, guys. Bye.